Hello, everyone. My name is Justin Ahn, and I am back with the second season of Between the Headlines, bringing you the stories that are shaping society. Through a series of interviews with experts and practitioners, we're going to be exploring the theme of dying democracy, uncovering how that's manifested in America and across the world, and how we can turn the tide. Today's episode takes a look at Belarus, an Eastern European dictatorship that's come under the spotlight lately for its role in helping Russia invade Ukraine. Belarus isn't just helping to destroy a neighboring democracy, it also has a horrific domestic political climate where its citizens' freedoms are being brutally repressed by autocratic president Alexander Lukashenko. In January, before the war in Ukraine, I interviewed Anais Marin, who works for the UN. Here is that conversation now. Uh, so my name is Anaïs Marin. I'm a French political scientist working in, in Poland. I'm affiliated with the University of Warsaw. And since November 2018, I am holding the UN mandate of Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Belarus. It's a pro bono mandate that I do on a voluntary basis and which has been taking me a lot of my free time, obviously, since the situation with human rights has uh, degraded uh, in 2020. So let's start talking about how would you describe the political atmosphere in Belarus at the moment? What is it like to be an everyday citizen from your perspective? Well, the situation uh, has never been satisfactory in Belarus from a human rights perspective. Uh, however, it has uh, degraded over the past 18 months. And the atmosphere I would describe now as one of fear and impunity for abuses against internationally recognized um, human rights. If you want me to go into more details... Um, in Belarus, there has always been, I mean, since Mr. Lukashenko has um, uh, tailored the, the constitution and institutions to his own needs, there has always been total executive control on all of the branches of power. Um, there is a puppet parliament, judges and lawyers have no independence, so there is no judiciary oversight either. And the country is, the administration is pretty much organized vertically where the president appoints uh, heads of regional administrations and has control over, over business as well and civil society. In fact, uh, there is a very limited space for civil society, but it has been shrinking uh, since the contested election, re-election of Mr. Lukashenko on 9th of August uh, 2020. And just last Last summer, for example, 300 NGOs have been liquidated. They have been forced to close down. Um, in general, the, the, um, the, uh, the situation with human rights encompasses all possible violations that we have in the handbook. Um, first of all, I would recall that um, Belarus still applies um, the capital punishment uh, and uh, apart from the, um, the disrespect for, for the right to life, um, the people who happen to uh, be arrested uh, and, and detained, as has been the case for over 40,000 of them um, since uh, the, the last contested election, they are facing um, mistreatment as well. We have 
had uh, numerous records and testimonies of torture and ill-treatment and humiliation against those detained. But in general, one must understand that um, there are no freedoms in Belarus in the sense that freedom of opinion and expression has been denied uh, systematically uh, for the past 20 years. And today, um, people keep on being arrested for posting critical views on social networks. What we have noticed in the past year is also that criminal charges for extremism have been called against administrators of um, uh, chats and telegram channels. Uh, this Telegram is this uh, social network which uh, the authorities cannot control technically, and uh, but when they happen to to uh, arrest one person who is a member of one of these chats, and sometimes it's just courtyard chats, not even political or positionist ones, uh, they force the person to 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 release his. Uh, passwords so that um, so, so that the um, investigators can can access the conversations and someone who was who has been critical of the government or its policies in a chat which he thought was was private can be held accountable um, and uh, so the the new legislation on uh, against uh, extremism and terrorism is being used specifically to to repress all dissidents and i'm using this term dissidents which which would ring a bell for all those who so studied the soviet union i believe that the situation in belarus is hardly better than uh during those times when when um civil liberties were were extremely limited but of more concern is the fact that uh following uh, the the um, the peaceful protests against uh, against Mr. Lukashenko since since August 2020, um, there have been uh, con con constant uh, limitations in law and in practice to the enjoyment of all uh, uh, human rights, including uh, freedom of peaceful assembly, as we have seen, but also freedom of association. There is. Um, no independent political opposition party has ever been allowed to register in Belarus. And uh, when we talk about limitations to the freedom of expression, it also uh, manifests itself in a constant harassment of uh, media and journalists, bloggers. Uh, tens of them are in, uh, in prison uh, only for having done uh, their job. They are accused of, of uh, supporting actions that uh, troubled public order, although um, most from the records that we have, most of the um, uh, protests were, were peaceful, in fact. Um, but the, the um, government also controls the media and um, there has been a, a continuous trend from the propaganda media to portray uh, the, the the protest as violent, as illegitimate, and uh, they claim as being um, sort of a color revolution type of of protest, uh, meaning engineered from uh, from the West uh, with view at at uh, toppling down uh, Mr. Lukashenko. Okay. So let's backtrack here for one second to talk about the origin of the protests and the election that you've sort of been referring to. How exactly did that process play out, and then how did the reaction to it eventually build up? 
Mr. Lukashenko has first been elected uh, democratically in 1994, but since then uh, he has been widely believed of uh, having uh, manipulated election results to ensure that he would stay in power after having first changed the constitution that uh, to allow himself to to run indefinitely um, so the in previous years for example the osc the organization for security and cooperation in europe which has um, which uh, sends election monitors uh, throughout the region, I mean, in, in Europe in, in general, uh, they have assessed elections in Belarus as falling short of meeting international standards for, for free, fair and transparent election. I've been myself an election observer in the past, and, and I can confirm that um, there were a lot of uh, manipulation, if not fraud. Um, the conditions... <clears throat> In the last elections in, on 9th of August 2020 were specific because, uh, well, due to the COVID and uh, to the late invitation of the OSCE, um, it could not deploy an election observation mission. So the international community now has no ground to, to criticize the election because they had no eyes on the ground to really monitor the situation, except from the information that has been communicated by, by local observers who in practice were denied the right to, to, to monitor the process and had to resort to uh, other techniques to try and, and uh, evidence uh, the election manipulation. And again, it's nothing new in Belarus, so uh, we could suspect uh, that the old um, techniques were being used again. Um, the As I mentioned earlier, the... Um, the ground, I mean, the civil society uh, is uh, prevented from really taking part in public life in, in Belarus. And uh, there were a lot of um, mechanisms for uh, preventing um, candidates from, from running. Uh, but, uh, I mean, at least three of the most um, serious challengers were prevented from running, were arrested um, on, on politically motivated charges. One was forced to exile. All this before the, the, the beginning of the election campaign proper in, in July. And um, to evidence that the um, the results claimed by Mr. Lukashenko the, of uh, having won the elections again with 80% of the vote, to evidence that this was um, not true and that, in fact, his main opponent, uh, Mrs. Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, had gathered way more than the 10% that the Central Electoral Commission granted her. Uh, there have been two... Um, organizations uh, that that uh, conducted uh, sort of uh, post uh, like exit polls uh, for example based on on uh, a software that was developed by golos uh, and and other russian um, uh, election independent election observers uh, belarusians were offered an opportunity to 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 download a program on their phone and to upload a picture of their ballot paper uh, so that then there could be some sort of a parallel count. And um, more than 600,000 people used that. And based on this, it was already evident that uh, some uh, results could not be trusted at, at local uh, uh, precinct uh, uh, level, for example. And then um, academics have also... Uh, done some arithmetic calculations based on the protocols, uh, you know, with the written results that were communicated by electoral commissions, which claimed 
to have refused orders to falsify the results. So out of these some 6,500 protocols that are uh, um, you know, counted that for, from each um, uh, precinct, uh, electoral precinct in the country, um, independent uh, experts could have access to 1,300 of them. So that gives already a picture because on this basis, they concluded that Mr. Lukashenko had not possibly one with 80% of the vote. At minimum, uh, he and, and Mrs. Tsikhanovskaya should have gone for a, for a runoff. If, if it's, it's all very difficult to, uh, to, to, to demonstrate, and it's not my role to, uh, to claim that, uh, that Mrs. Tsikhanovskaya was in fact elected, but this is what a majority of Belarusians are uh, convinced about. And, um, this has this is what uh, pushed them to to hit the streets already on the 9th of august and in the following months as well to protest what they saw as a one more stolen um election um and uh, they were met with um, with repression uh, the election day was followed, as I said, by peaceful protests to which the government responded with excessive and brutal force, with arbitrary arrests. Uh, there were multiple alleged cases of torture and ill treatment, also enforced disappearances. Uh, I remind that according to international law, uh, international human rights law standards, uh, when somebody is being detained, uh, he should have access to a lawyer, his family should be informed, he should be informed about his rights and what um, charges, uh, on, on what grounds he is being detained. And, um, and there were many, many cases when relatives were simply running from one hospital to another or, or or, or to police stations to try and, and find out where, where their loved ones were. And when they came out of, of custody after a week or after a month, or some of them have not come out, they were charged later, sentenced to prison terms. Um, they were um, testifying of uh, intense pressure, intimidation, harassment, and, and again, uh, ill treatment, to, which some of them amount to torture. Um, and the, this, uh, the mobilization continued nonetheless until about November, end of November 2020, when the repression and the cold weather, in fact, pushed them uh, back home and to online protests only. But since then, what we have uh, uh, witnessed at, at the UN, and um, uh, this is uh, something that has been reported to us uh, by eyewitnesses and by um, human rights defenders, uh, the, 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 the repression continues. Um, so if it was extremely intense and visible in the first uh, weeks when at least four people lost their lives and there was still foreign media present and we could see everyday people um, gathering and, and, and trying to exert their right to freedom of uh, peaceful assembly. Uh, in the For the past year or so, what we have seen is a more um, hidden way of repressing dissenters, um, pushing people to silence, basically to self-censorship. Um, there have been cases of forced expulsions, 
um, with, and, and, and threats against, uh, against those who have temporarily sought refuge abroad. Now they're afraid of coming back for fear of arrest. And what we have seen is, is what I would call a witch hunt. Uh, and, and people are now being chased down. Um, and, um, I mean, it's, it, it concerns people from all walks of life, not oppositionists, not necessarily people who hold political opinions at all. Again, it's really the whole of civil society which is targeted. It started even before the elections um, against um, medical workers because uh, the, the the government had chosen to ignore the the COVID. Uh, that was a, quite an eccentric policy of claiming that, that there was no COVID in Belarus, but in fact, people could see um, their, their friends and relatives and colleagues dying of pneumonia in in in, pris- in, in, uh, in hospitals, and uh, all those who who dared to to reveal this this reality and, and the dire situation in, in which hospital wars were, including. Um, uh, doctors and nurses uh, did did uh, uh, publicly uh, criticize government policy. They have been all all uh, uh, fired, intimidated. Um, but then it continued with I mentioned with bloggers, journalists, um, people who exerted their constitutional right to give signatures to. Um, uh, potential uh, candidates, uh, because in Belarus to to run for for president you have to gather one hundred thousand signatures, and there were pickets throughout the spring of twenty twenty to gather these signatures for alternative candidates, and people dared to to go and give their signature because they wanted some alternative, and retrospectively now what we see is that um, those civil servants, teachers, doctors workers, employees from uh, state-owned enterprises who had given their signature back almost two years ago are now being harassed. They are forced to resign from their jobs. They are fired. And when you lose your job in, in Belarus, you have very little chance of of, um, uh, of surviving, basically, because it's pretty much still a Soviet system where you have like a, a work uh, employer's um, uh, book, book, handbook, and uh, there is uh, the uh, a, a bad notice on on this book, and then you cannot uh, you cannot really be hired anywhere else. So this situation has pushed a lot of people into exile. We're trying to identify um, uh, how many exactly, but from the different. Um, evaluations that I could have access to, including by asking uh, governments, uh, host country governments, to to indicate uh, the number of asylum status that they granted, the number of humanitarian visa that they granted. We can estimate that there are at least 100,000 people have uh, been forced into exile, if not double. But it can be way more than that because um, we keep seeing uh, families uh, coming well, I live in Warsaw, so I, I can see them arriving basically every day. Uh, there are people who, who run away from, from Belarus. Um, they come here with, with almost nothing and they have to start their life anew. And um, so that's that, again, contributes to this overall climate of, uh, of fear and um, in a way also of desperation. I mean, the whole society was, was in 
post-traumatic shock after the, the violence that they could also see on, on social media. They were not used to that um, that visibility of, of the state repression. And it's not they're not used to it in the sense that Belarusians are a very law-abiding um, nation. They are very peaceful. Uh, and uh, when they could see that people in plain clothes, uh, so not... A, 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 affiliated with with the uh with the law enforcement bodies but you know they were wearing masks and and baklavas you know and wearing black and um and and they simply arrested people in the street to beat them and this this has been a shock for 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 many people and this has explained also why mr lukashenko has lost most of his popularity um but what people feel now is a sense of um uh, despair because uh, after all these months of of um, claiming their rights, uh, their their fundamental freedoms and 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 their rights, uh, they have uh, didn't well. All these efforts have uh, brought no no improvement, more more to the contrary, and uh, and the situation keeps on getting going getting from bad to worse and and people don't really see an, an an end of the of the tunnel and the end of their of their um of their trauma i mean um so this this crackdown um is is still going on and they have the feeling that it has gone sort of on the back burner that there is not as much international attention as as the as as the situation deserves, because it is indeed catastrophic from a human rights perspective. What exactly are the dynamics of opposition in Belarus? Is it this kind of grassroots thing that you're talking about, or is there some form of organization or leadership or international influence? Well, as I said, there the right to freedom of association has been um, systematically restricted in Belarus, so there are no uh, opposition parties, uh, and individually opposition leaders uh, have um, also sort of been excluded from from the landscape, from the political landscape, um, which. Uh, for example, uh, official media tend to present the opposition as on a, on a Western CIA payroll, as people who are um, who are disloyal to their own country because uh, they would be attacking not Mr. Lukashenko and, and his regime personally, but they would be enemies of the state, and um, for that reason, there has there wasn't really any strong uh, political opposition and and especially no opposition leader. Uh, in uh, in the sense that we would understand it in in democratic countries, um, ever there was never uh, like a single opposition leader. So in that sense, the Belarusian situation uh, is not comparable to the situation which is, for example, in Venezuela. Uh, but uh, the in twenty twenty there were several changes because. Um, there was again because of the covid uh there there has been some sort of an awakening of civil society to itself people had to help one another to establish new horizontal networks and and cooperation and support uh that that did not exist just to compensate for the uh, for for the um 
the, the limits of, of, of state um, action to, to, to fight the pandemic. And uh, on this back background on uh, the this has served sort of as as a nest for new public discussions uh among among uh, people at at very low levels so there was some sort of a grassroots movement that emerged already uh, before 2020 i mean during 2020 in the early months and um on this uh, i mean part of this movement was um fed by uh, by bloggers and and other you know social network activists who were not necessarily having a political discourse again but uh, just the claim we want to live in a normal country uh, we want our rights um, the government is not doing what it should on this this and that so we propose this and this and that and there was a very it was a very interesting moment i mean sociologically of uh, people confidently expressing their views and exchanging best practices and ideas and solving the problems uh, at at very local level. And one of these bloggers, uh, Sergei Tsikhanovsky, uh, became quite famous online and he started um, uh, touring the country offline (laughs) um, to, to meet his followers and at some point he announced that he was ready to run for president. That was in April 2020. And he was, after a couple of weeks, he was uh, arrested uh, on, on fabricated charges and he's still in custody. He's just been condemned to 18 years in prison. And uh, the his arrest uh, has um, sent a signal that, that again, the, the government was ready to resort to its old techniques uh, to 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 uh, ensure the the re-election of the incumbent so there was more mobilization and more street protests in the already back in in the spring 2020 and as I mentioned people starting to to uh, give to, to be more active in public uh, life, political life, by giving their signatures to alternative candidates. One, another candidate emerged as um, a very promising one for uh, for including for the nomenclatura for for the people who work for for, for the government and and uh, you know civil servants um, and the business community. It's uh, Viktor Babariko, who is who is um, a banker and and a businessman. And uh, he was credited with with at least one million uh, signatures. He was there. There were claims that that uh, his campaign teams could could gather as many signatures as that, which was illustrative of his uh, very uh, high popularity at the time. And he was also arrested in uh, June 2020 uh, on uh, grounds of uh, of uh, financial crimes. Uh, embezzlement and and things like this. Uh, he too has been condemned to to prison on charges we consider as as uh, fabricated. And um, a third election candidate was also prevented from running. The signatures were invalidated, and he could not uh, run, and he was forced into exile to to Russia. Uh, Valery Tsipkalo. And after in that in that context, uh, in early July. Um, 
the wife of the blogger Tsikhanovsky, Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya, decided to run instead of her husband. So she had gathered the signatures for him and she could um, uh, send them to the Central Electoral Commission and say, I will be the one running. And it was accepted. And here probably the the government made the strategic mistake in underestimating the potential popularity of a woman. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a paternalistic state with um, some deeply rooted uh, uh, gender um, prejudices. And and nonetheless, she could gather a significant uh, amount of popular support. And here, the opposition, in a way, which, as I said, came mostly from civil society, not for from uh, traditional oppositionists um, gathered behind her, uh, you know, teamed up and helped her in her campaign. She was uh, totally new in 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 in, in this. She's a, 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 a mother at home, a teacher, and uh, and she became um, she became. A, almost a professional politician in, in a matter of, of months. And she was prepped and, uh, you know, by supporters to, to, to hold um, uh, meetings, you know, like this and to agitate throughout the country. And it was obvious, including for the authorities that she was extremely popular and therefore dangerous. And, um, she was uh, forced into exile on the day after the election. Two days after, uh, she was uh, detained by the KGB and and um, uh, basically released at the border with Lithuania with no chance of, of coming back. So the opposition that is now in Belarus, which is fighting um, for, um, I understand it, for, for an L- 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 alternation of power for for Mr. Lukashenko to resign. I think this is the most um, um, well-formulated claim that they that they have. They want the liberation of political prisoners. They want the organization of new elections, uh, clean ones, you know, genuine, transparent elections without the participation of Mr. Lukashenko. And these people are, are um, not professional oppositionists um, and uh, in a way it's a very very new type of uh, social mobilization again from a sociological perspective it's um, the Belarusians have um, evidence to, to the world that they are able to uh, be resilient in spite of, of the repression and to invent new ways of, of mobilizing always peacefully and in spite of the difficulties. And um, nowadays we can see that Mrs. Tsikhanovskaya has become sort of an icon. So she's not really, she's presented as the leader of the democratic forces of Belarus, but uh, she's not a political leader. She's not even a political activist. She's more of an icon um, who impersonates this, uh, this desire from civil society to uh, to have something new and in, and to have their rights uh, respected. Okay, let's now talk about the border crisis, which I find totally fascinating. And like you said, I think it's something that on a global scale goes very much under addressed. So could you give us a quick introduction as to how and why this border situation came about and what exactly is happening? First of all, I should say that I'm not speaking as um, I, I don't represent the the UN. I'm an independent expert um, 
appointed to monitor the situation with human rights. And this does not extend to the situation of third country migrants because the UN um, uh, Council for Human Rights, uh, Human Rights Council, has um, a special rapporteur on the human rights of migrants, Mr. Felipe Gonzalez. And he has been the one taking the lead on this uh, commenting for, for, for media, for example. Whereas I was asked to, to refrain so as to um, not be seen as uh, lacking impartiality or neutrality, which is requested from, from um, UN uh, mandate holders. Uh, so I will just uh, uh, remind of what the public, most of the public, at least here in Europe, is, is aware. Uh, the Starting in the spring 2021, uh, Lithuanians started noting um, a growing number of potential illegal immigrants at their border with Belarus, uh, also people illegally penetrating on, on Lithuanian soil. And um, they could, uh, they, there were some investigations being, being made by, by investigative journalists and I suppose also at diplomatic or intelligence level to identify why uh, this sudden um, surge in the numbers, because in the past there were like seven and eight illegal border crossing attempts per year on the Lithuanian border. Uh, between Jan January and, and June 2021, uh, they could record almost uh, 4,000. And it appeared that um, this, um, this influx of uh, uh, migrants from the Middle East was engineered was uh, that that apparently the um, organizations very near to to the to the government of Belarus to the administration of the president had um, incited has encouraged uh, people to uh, to come to Belarus uh, as tourists uh, with with tourist visa usually uh, with the claiming that, well, then from there, it would be very easy for them to cross into the EU, either at the border with Lithuania or with uh, Belarus. And again, I have no way to verify these allegations because first, the government doesn't recognize my mandate, so I'm persona non grata myself in, in Belarus. Uh, however, I have read a very convincing um, results from, from independent investigations, from journalists who have identified that there was indeed like a, a smuggling theme, basically to, to smuggle people, like human trafficking, to, to smuggle people into the EU. So making them pay uh, to, to board a plane, be hosted in, in Minsk in a hotel, and at some point they would be bused to the border and um, told to, to cross to, in the forest and then try and find a way to, to illegally uh, cross uh, the, the fence into, into Poland. And the thing is that, um, well, it didn't uh, turn out as uh, the, the, the migrants were hoping because when it became known in those networks that, that well, the, the border with the EU, the Belarus border, Belarus-EU border is, is a possible way to, to safely, easily get into the EU. Of course, there were thousands of potential uh, migrants who, who bought their tickets from, 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 from uh, Iraq, from Syria, from Turkey, to go to, to, to Minsk and, and from there try to cross, thinking that it would be less dangerous than, than crossing the Mediterranean Sea, for example. It turned out way the contrary, because 
um, Polish border guards and Lithuanian border guards were uh, on alert and they um, they didn't uh, let the uh, people cross in illegally. Uh, they protected the borders and uh, apparently they also practiced pushbacks, uh, meaning uh, when they found an illegal migrant on uh, in the border zone, on their territory, they would simply return him to Belarus, which is contrary to international uh, human rights law. Uh, and that is how people got stranded. Uh, thousands of people were stranded on the Belarusian side of the border and um, and others who had managed to cross into the EU, although they were not necessarily sure they were on EU territory already because it's mainly it's a forest area and and um, uh, they uh, some of them were trying to escape arrest by by Polish border guards and this has led to uh, terrible uh, situations with uh, several people died, died of hypothermia, of hunger, uh, thirst, and um, and there have been apparently also cases of, of violence uh, by, um, well, we don't know exactly by whom, uh, and and people were beaten or, or, um, or, or well, violently pushed back uh, to one side or the other of, of the border. So this has been interpreted as as um, uh, the situation where where uh, migrants have been hostages of a political dispute between Belarus and its EU neighbors. Um, this dispute is a is is a political one. It's it's there. It's been there for a long time because both countries are. Um, have been, always been very vocal to ask, uh, to demand a strong stance against um, against uh, Mr. Lukashenko's uh, wrongdoings from from a, a human rights uh, view, and uh, to they pushed for sanctions uh, at the EU EU level, and uh, both countries, Lithuania and and Poland, host a significant amount of, as I said, refugees. Some of them um, political activists, and and therefore they are are presented in Minsk as, um, well, uh, safe heavens for, for the opposition, which, again, is, is labeled in Belarus as extremists and dangerous uh, terrorists. So uh, in, it seems that um, the, 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 the government of Belarus has indeed used uh, migrants to put pressure on, on its neighbors, um, because knowing that, well, they would not welcome uh, migrants even legal migrants uh, from the Middle East. Uh, so, well, they know what are the um, uh, the, the the opinions in in uh, in Poland um, in society and at the level of the government, which is not uh, very uh, open to to otherness and to to uh, people, especially from another faith than than uh, Christian, and uh, and therefore they the. In a way, this has been in in uh, in Poland, for example. This uh, situation has been labeled an, a hybrid attack, in the sense that it's not uh, it's not kinetic, it's not it's not a military uh, attack, but there's been uh, indeed an attempt at uh, breaching the, the 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 border regime, and and uh, apparently some border guards in, on the Belarusian side were helping the migrants uh, cut the um, the barbed wire to cross illegally into into. Uh, into Poland, and um, 
so so the 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 narrative in in Poland was that uh, Poland is under attack that that uh, Lukashenko that that Belarus is uh, has launched a war basically against uh, against Poland so they they replied um by by uh, sending troops by de- declaring um a state of emergency, meaning that uh, journalists were not allowed, uh, medics either. So uh, that caused also significant um, disputes inside uh, Polish society because, and, and within the European Union too, between Poland and other countries, uh, which have other views on how to treat migrants and uh, who were not, uh, well, in the end, the EU has um, sort of backed the the government of Poland to help it stay strong uh, and and uh, not um, sort of not uh, accept this sort of blackmail from from Mr. Lukashenko, who at some point admitted himself that uh, yes, they were encouraging migrants to to go to the EU and that they could uh, resume a better control of their border with the EU if. Uh, sanctions were lifted, so it was indeed a, a blackmail. But um, from a, from a human rights perspective, what is very concerning is that uh, both countries, in a way, have uh, violated the human rights of of the migrants, and this has been a very. Uh, like openly stated by my colleagues uh, from from the special procedures branch at at uh, in Geneva, uh, so the, the the special rapporteur on the human rights of migrants and the special rapporteur on torture, um, and the special rapporteur on the right to physical and mental health, they sent uh, letters to the government of Belarus and to the government of Poland to ask for explanations and encourage them to find a, a, a diplomatic. Um, to, to discuss and, and find a, a, a diplomatic solution to, to this crisis. And they published a statement on the 6th of, to- of October following the death of a sixth migrant, uh, in which they claim that um, the, uh, the, well, they, they reminded uh, both governments that, I quote, no matter how they have traveled and arrived at international borders, all migrants regardless of status, have the right to seek and enjoy protection. The rights of migrants to a prompt individual examination of their circumstances must also be respected, and international law prohibits arbitrary or collective expulsions and refoulement, uh, which is it's a non-derogable right, just as freedom from torture. It means that it can never be suspended, not even in a state of emergency. So it was a disguised way to also criticize the policies of of Poland, which, um, in faced with these uh, thousands of people at border crossing points, they closed down the bo- the border crossing points, uh, which means that there were no the the conditions were not in place for um, for uh, the authorities to conduct the normal investigation that they should do when when a potential um, asylum seeker is coming to a border. You have to have a conversation. You have to determine who is this person, where he or she comes from, why, um, and, and what does he or she want. Does he want international protection, meaning asylum? And most of the migrants actually did not want um, asylum in, in, in Poland. That's why they didn't want to risk being arrested by Polish border guards. 
because then they had the solution either you go back or you apply for asylum in Poland. What they wanted is asylum in Germany or just even crossing uh, Poland, you know, sometimes on foot, hitchhiking or however, you know, like at night and things like this, just to make it to the German border. And then in Germany, they would have relatives, families, potential employers waiting for them and and, uh, eventually granting them after some time um, a legal status, simply as as economic migrants, for example. But Germany also stood firm and did not... um, accept the, the, the blackmail, say these people did not come to the border in normal conditions. So uh, it's you cannot like all let them in, so for example, as was demanded by, by many uh, human rights defenders. Um, and that is also why people kept on trying to cross the border illegally by uh, not not at the border crossing points but at the um, in, in the forest and and this is where uh, it was extremely difficult to 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 see what happened exactly because there was non access um, there was no access granted for 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 journalists or 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 um, or volunteers, uh, or, or um, experts and helpers from from the uh, high commission, uh, high commission Shariat for refugees and things like that. They could not go in the forest in uh, in the places where where people tried to illegally uh, cross uh, the border. And from what I know at this stage, um, the the UNHCR and the OHCHR, so the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, have uh, sent experts. Uh, they were allowed to Poland. They had discussions with the government. They reminded them of international standards, but they were not. Uh, the, the government of Belarus did not grant them uh, access. So basically, the situation remains mm, difficult. From what we hear, there are still uh, migrants trying to to cross. Uh, the many of them have who were stranded in Belarus have accepted to be flown back to their home countries, but thousands of others preferred not to go home for fear of of uh, repression in their own country or civil war. If we think about Syria. Or Afghanistan, and um, and so they stayed in in Belarus and wait for a new opportunity to cross the border, uh, possibly illegally again. So Poland has started the construction of a five meter high um, wall along uh, most of its border with with Belarus, uh, almost two hundred kilometers, and it should be completed in June this year. But um, we foresee that uh, migrants will keep on trying to uh, to to get into um, into the EU either through through Poland, eventually through Ukraine, through Latvia, and uh, the what it sh- one thing is for sure is that the government of Belarus will not cooperate with the EU to limit that influx. We don't know if it's still encouraging this uh, probably not because it didn't work this blackmail didn't work but it uh, it is not ready to uh, to resume a proper control of of its own borders um, to to make sure that it uh, that that um, there are no illegal border crossings into into the EU and evidence of this is that we see a lot of uh, smuggling that that has also intensified uh, notably um 
cigarette smuggling uh, by 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 train to to Lithuania has been a, a growing problem. There are uh, people being arrested all the time who are involved in in this um, in this illegal trafficking. So it's all goes, I, I believe, in the same. It's all part of the same picture of um, border, like putting pressure on the EU by by uh, putting pressure on its borders. To look at this in a kind of broader context, what can the international community do to influence or react to a situation in a country that's as closed off as Belarus? In these conditions, the only way that I see to, to try and improve the situation is to try and continue to persuade the authorities and to eventually pressure the government to, to compel uh, and show respect uh, to human rights. As I said, uh, free uh, people who, have been arbitra- who are being arbitrarily detained and um, uh, conduct the reforms uh, that, uh, that have been long awaited. Uh, my own mandate has existed for 10 years. It's been 10 years that the Human Rights Council has a specific country mandate on Belarus. It's the only European country which has this honor. And um, we can see that the institutional def- deficiencies remain are, are systemic and they cannot change unless uh, there is a real political willingness to engage in, in reforms and in all my reports to, to the Human Rights Council or to the General Assembly, the recommendations are mostly um, addressed to the government of, of Belarus to encourage and recommend uh, ways to, uh, to, to, to improve the situation and, uh, and, and um, comply with, with international uh, human rights law. But the government has been um, lending us a deaf ear, to say the least. And uh, that is why under the current situation, where, as I described, things have been going uh, from bad to worse, uh, we are specifically concerned by uh, the climate of impunity. Uh, I believe that uh, the since it seems from the testimonies I keep on gathering directly from from victims of human rights violations, from witnesses, from their lawyers, from human rights defenders. It seems that the violations continue, they intensify, and some of the uh, abuses could amount to uh, to crimes, to crimes against humanity. I'm talking here especially about torture, which apparently is used systematically um, in, in a premeditated way by... by um, by law enforcement bodies and and, and their uh, affiliates. And another issue of concern, which is also sort of giving hope to some Belarusians that um, the situation might get more attention internationally, is the cases of uh, forced exile, which I mentioned earlier, that people not only have been exposed, for many of them, mostly the political uh, oppositionists have been manually expulsed from the country. But uh, the situation on the ground and the amount of repression has led to a situation when people feel they have no other option than to leave the country for their own safety. And again, this targets people from all walks of life. So this situation of uh, forced exile can can amount to a so-called deportation. And this is a crime. This is a crime against humanity, and this has been clearly um, uh, 
there there is one precedent I would say is the situation with the Rohingya uh, who have uh, fled uh, from uh, from Myanmar due to repression. Uh, the the numbers are are not the same yet in uh, in Belarus. As I said, we count some hundreds of thousands of people who have been forced into exile. But if the situation does not improve. Uh, we can fear that the the country will be simply emptied of all its, uh, you know, of, of most of 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 its people of the, I would say the intellectual elite for sure. Some of the um, the IT sector has always has also been very much active in in the protests and the online protests, and therefore targeted by repression and for fear of having their business shut down and their employers. Um, jailed uh, most of these businesses have relocated abroad and so this creates you know tensions also for for the economy and uh, so so the country is is um is becoming it seems more and more like 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 a camp you know a concentration camp for those who stay and all the others are 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 forced to seek uh, refuge abroad and um this, these two elements um, are, are um, important in the current efforts uh, by human rights defenders, organizations, and, and, and NGOs to call the, um, the attention of, uh, of um, prosecutors worldwide and potentially the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, because uh, the crimes that I mentioned, um, crimes against humanity, are um, uh, are so, so-called use cogens. So everybody has a moral responsibility to um, to prosecute such crimes or alleged crimes, and um, that is why there is. Um, there are efforts now being made in foreign courts, for example, in, in Lithuania, in Germany, also following the, uh, if, if you remember a couple of days ago, uh, a Syrian uh, officer of, of, the, of the Syrian regime who's been uh, accused of, um, of uh, serious crimes, massive serious crimes, including of, of torture and forced disappearances and extrajudicial executions, uh, has been convicted to life imprisonment by a German Tribunal because he happened to be in Germany. Um, there is uh, the, so this serves as examples for many people in uh, in Belarus and outside who are who are trying to find a way out of the situation at least by sending the signal to perpetrators of human rights violations that their crimes will not uh, be will not remain unpunished. For now, uh, perpetrators probably have the feeling that the government is defending them. And indeed, from the records we have, there have been um, no, none of the alleged crimes uh, that have been committed, um, perpetrated in, in Belarus against peaceful protesters, for example. You know, torture in, in, in detention, ill treatment in, in, in prison, um, extrajudicial executions. We have at least four, if not eight, uh, people uh, who died apparently uh, killed by uh, by um, law enforcement uh, agents. Uh, and these these have led to the to no opening of any sort of investigation. So the justice system is on the side of the perpetrators of abuses. And therefore, 
for torture to stop, for example, there needs to be a signal that uh, a reminder that uh, this is um, a non-derogable um, uh, right, you know, freedom from torture, and that the perpetrators could be held accountable. And this is why also the um, the Human Rights Council has launched a specific accountability mechanism. So it's not a commission of inquiry. Uh, because there is no co- cooperation uh, on the from on the part of the government of Belarus, but still it has entitled um, uh, people from the OHCHR under the supervision of the High Commissioner herself to um, uh, seek uh, information details about the alleged uh, crimes, uh, I mean uh, abuses, human rights violations that have been committed. And the the resolution which established uh, this um, this uh, mechanism, it's uh, resolution of the Human Rights Council number forty six slash twenty. I quote: um, asked the um, the High Commissioner with the help of special procedures and appointed experts. So this is where uh, I have a role to play as well. To I quote: establish the facts and circumstances surrounding the alleged violations and to collect, consolidate, preserve and analyze information and evidence with a view to contributing to accountability for perpetrators and justice for victims and where possible to identify those responsible. So so this is a very strong wording which uh, gives um, a strong mandate, in fact, to the High Commissioner to gather evidence that can be then made available to a prosecutor according to this universal jurisdiction principle that I evoked earlier. Hopefully, uh, it would be a Belarusian prosecutor in a, in a free Belarus, uh, which, which uh, respects uh, the, the independence of, of the judiciary. But if that doesn't happen, um, this can be done abroad. Uh, because of this um, universal jurisdiction principle and eventually uh, either in national courts or possibly at the uh, International Criminal Court. Um, the ICC uh, is, uh, has no jurisdiction over Belarus uh, as such because uh, the, the government of Belarus has not signed the Rome Status. It doesn't recognize the competence of the court. However, there are articles in the Rome Status that um, allow for, um, for a case of alleged uh, crimes against humanity to be um, um presented to to the prosecutor and and the, the the prosecutor can can declare the court uh competent if a part of the alleged crime has been committed on the territory of a state that does recognize the competence of the court and this is the case of uh latvia lithuania uh poland and Ukraine, neighboring countries which are ready to cooperate with the ICC and who have, it it happens, are hosting uh, numerous uh, um, uh, groups of of, uh, victims of of these human rights violations. So at least the victims are on their territory, which means part of the crime has been committed on their territory. It's just in this, the same as in the case of the Rohingya. I mean, those who are 
who sent this communication to the uh, to the prosecutor are building on the precedent of the Rohingya who have found refuge in Bangladesh and Bangladesh does recognize the competence of the International Criminal Court and therefore uh, a, a preliminary investigation was opened for potential crime of deportation. And this is what is probably on the agenda for the coming year at the at the level of the international community, because all other paths for uh, fighting uh, for accountability against impunity and for changes, positive changes uh, at uh, in, in Belarus are um, dependent on political will, which uh, is not necessarily there or not in a sufficient amount. And here I, I refer specifically to those countries in, in, the, um, in the UN and notably in the Security Council, which uh, consider, which support Belarus because they consider that, well, elections and, and human rights are a domestic affair and that the UN has no uh, legitimacy to, to interfere in their domestic affairs and, and um, uh, express concern about uh, about uh, human rights violations, but I do, and and uh, I um, I would like to thank you for this opportunity to uh, for me to that that you gave me to to uh, explain for your audience uh, the situation and and the possible uh, solutions that we can envisage. Okay, I have one final question, which is what's something that this crisis can teach us or warn us about other authoritarian regimes that are also adverse to human rights? Well, there is this uh, saying, I don't know if it's Belarusian or Russian, it's a joke, unfortunately, it's not very funny. Um, it says, it goes like, we thought we had reached the bottom, but then we heard someone knocking from below. So there is uh, this, this feeling that things have gone from bad to worse in Belarus, and there is this fear that it can still continue. It can still go even worse. This is uh, there is lesson to be learned for democracies and those who try to promote democracy worldwide. Is that a consolidated authoritarian regime will stop at nothing to keep on holding on to power. And even though the situation has been bad for over twenty six years in Belarus now, from a human rights perspective. Over the past 18 months, things have really turned absolutely catastrophic. And this should be a warning also uh, for, for all other countries where we witness uh, a retreat of human rights, for example, uh, in terms of uh, limitation of freedom of expression, uh, limitation of freedom of peaceful assembly, um, restrictions on the right to register an, an association or, or um, uh, a political party, uh, because these are this could be early warnings that uh, things can go worse and that uh, democratic democratic values are not recognized worldwide. Far from that, but even human rights standards, which are um, enshrined in, in, in the international conventions that, that uh, countries have willingly um, adhered to and ratified, even these fundamental rights and freedoms can be cracked upon, can be restricted arbitrarily by, uh, by any government. But Mr. Lukashenko has um, probably uh, given sort of... Uh, 
the the the, the how to the of of uh, how to repress uh, civil society and hold on to power, which is also a lesson we should learn, is that um, unfortunately, for as long as as uh, he can he continues uh, to to um, to violate human rights, uh, this also sends a signal to other potential autocrats that well. They can do the same at home, and basically the international community will um, talk the talk, but probably not uh, be able to to do much to stop uh, to stop these human rights violations. Because this is what this situation we have now in Belarus illustrates, and which is quite depressing for for all of us at at, at the UN who try to uh, keep Belarus high on the agenda and um, and call on the international community to put more pressure on the government to respect its, um, its uh, international obligations. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you so much for joining this interview. That's incredibly valuable. And uh, thank you for your interest and good luck. All right, thank you.